spiraling in the wreckage of a failed love affair, Argentine poet Jorge Luis Borges channeled his devastation into his work, reassessing the slippery nature of our own identities and the way we perceive reality, ultimately securing his place in the literary pantheon, doggedly fighting against the scientific establishment for his controversial interpretation of quantum mechanics. German physicist Werner Heisenberg dared to accept the experimental evidence at face value, leading him to a principle that has been a guiding light for physicists ever since. Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant, horrified by the possibility that all knowledge might rest on uncertain grounds, undertook a, to test the limits of reasons, placing human understanding on a firmer footing than ever before. What these three thinkers shared, in addition to their uncommon intellect, was their skepticism not only of the accepted wisdom of their culture, but also of their own reasoning. And there is so much more that I could say about that as I've been reading a book called The Rigor of Angels, Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality by a professor named William Eggington. He is the Decker Professor in Humanities and the director of the Alexander Grass Humanities Institute of John Hopkins University. His monumental and riveting account of how a poet, a physicist, and a philosopher pursued truth to the very limits of human apprehension and revealed the fundamental nature of our place in the universe is what we will be discussing today on the Intentional Clinician podcast with Paul Krauss. If you are looking for ethical, fast, and affordable billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's therapistbillingservices.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Bill Eggington. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's a real pleasure. Wonderful. We're going to be discussing your new book, The Rigor of Angels. Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality that is just coming out right now in 2023. Um, So yeah, this is an interesting book for sure. I've been reading it and I must say I was not sure what to expect, Um, uh, but I'm not going to give it away yet, but I was curious, what intrigued you to write a book like this? I'd never seen those names sort of together in in a book before. Well, thanks for the question, Paul. And I I think we can say with some confidence that there never has been a book that's dealt with all three of those before, and uh, which is not the only reason to write a book about them, of course. But uh, I had been thinking about the topics in this book, essentially how people coming from radically different ways of thinking about the world or engaging with the world, from poetry, from physics, from philosophy, can converge around an understanding and idea of how humans interact with reality. And I've been thinking about this and teaching about it and writing little pieces about it for a long, long time. And then as I started to work on the shape of what would eventually become this book, One of the key questions for me is, well, this is a huge philosophical journey. Who are the three characters who are best poised to take us on this journey? And uh, my, I took a several, I took several steps at it, to be honest. Uh, uh, An early version had uh, a similar number of chapters to the, to the version that you have now. So something like with, with an introduction and uh, conclusion about 14 
chapters, 12 of which were content, and each of them was dedicated to a different character from the history of uh, of philosophy. And um, this was this was getting scattered in a way; it lacked a, a, a through line. Then I then I said, well, let me put that aside and try for something completely different. And then I focused on a on a philosopher from the uh, from the uh, fourth century, third and fourth century, Boethius, whom I write about in this uh, in early in one of the chapters uh, of the current book. Then I just realized that was too much weight for this one character to carry, and needed to be needed to be more than that. So fewer than twelve characters, more than three, and then it hit me that about a decade ago in the New York Times philosophy forum called The Stone, I had published a little piece um, that had exactly these three characters in it. Uh, and so I went back and I reminded myself of what the intersection was, and that was it. It had been there. I had already written about it, and I said, "This is perfect." Now, what I need to do is really blow up all of, all three of these characters. Really dive into their lives, dive into their preoccupations, spend time with them, and and then weave them together into one coherent story. And so that was the uh, the ultimate structure that came out of it. The historical structure is basically that it's almost you can think of it like a V in time. Kant is. Um, um, well, Kant's going to turn 300 years old uh, uh, next year, whereas Borges and uh, Heisenberg shared the 20th century. Uh, so they were very roughly contemporaries from the beginning of the 20th century till uh, the 1970s in Heisenberg's case, 1980s in Borges's case. And both of them were deeply influenced by uh, by Kant, each uh, in, in his own way. And so that ended up being the structure of the book. It tells the story of their thought through the story of their lives and kind of... Uh, wraps them tighter and tighter around each other until you get to the conclusion. Excellent. Thank you for that. I was, yeah, that's what I was noticing when I was reading through it. It seemed like not a philosophy book because it got me into it from their story of their lives. And then Mm -hmm. like what they were thinking about and kind of what they were going through at the time in their personal lives. And so that's what set it apart for me from a, a standard philosophy text espousing thoughts about different philosophers and different people. And obviously Kant is the philosopher here and Heisenberg, the physicist and Borges, the poet. And it seemed to me that you were also going as far as I've gotten in the book is that showing how their thoughts, not only sort of kind of interwove or intersected, but also how they evolved over time. Is that what you were kind of going for? For sure. Uh, and because each of them is a human being and each of them has uh, has a story and uh, and that story involves fits and starts. It involves obsession. It involves, in some cases, love and loss. Um, but it's always about evolution and change in the end. And I think what each of these characters, uh, each of these great, great thinkers, transformational in, in each of their fields, um, ultimately was able to do was to converge upon an extremely important insight about our relationship to the ultimate nature of reality, but to do so uh, in a way that was very loyal to what they were doing. It was loyal to language and poetry and storytelling in the case of Borges. It was loyal to the experimentation of high energy physics in the case of uh, Werner Heisenberg, and it was loyal to, uh, to the whole history of thought and philosophy in the case of Immanuel Kant. And what was extraordinary to me and what was so compelling about the story is that these these three very different ways of grappling with fundamental questions would ultimately be revealing of something so so presciently similar. Mm. Yes, I think that is 
why a story becomes interesting versus just explaining what they thought and why. And here's the bullet points on that. I feel like it really, you really wrapped it up there and in ways that I was not, I was actually unprepared for when I got the book. So I I, I was really intrigued. Um, I also saw throughout the book that you had quotes from different texts that they had written, different letters they had written, different historians' takes on uh, them, which I thought I thought were really interesting because you could see, depending on the source, the language was different than kind of our modern language, and some of the observations were really interesting. So I felt that it really gave it, instead of it just your opinion about what was going on back with Immanuel Kant and in the career of uh, Borges and Heisenberg, it was like people sort of talking about them in real time or around that time. That was kind of what I was I mean, there is, there's, I'm really trying to jump into the historical moment uh, in each of their cases and try and bring that moment alive. Uh, But in each case, we're talking about people who changed um, an entire sector of humanity's way of, of, of viewing things, right? There would be no modern physics or modern science without Werner Heisenberg's uh, uh, discoveries, without the robust debates that he was involved with, uh, involved in, in the in the early part of the 20th century. There would be no modern philosophy without Immanuel Kant. He really, in many ways, set the stage for everything that we do in modern Western philosophy uh, today. And, and much of, of our thought today is a response or, or an attempt to come to terms with uh, with Kant. And Borges had a very similar impact on 20th century literature. It was often said about Borges that the most surprising thing about Borges was that he didn't win the Nobel Prize for Literature, which I, I get into a little bit about the controversies about that at, uh, uh, at the time. Yes. And uh, another thing I noticed was, like, I guess you said this already, so we'll get into some specifics here in a moment, but generally some of the scientific discoveries of Heisenberg and others, because he was really debating with people about his, the way he thought about things. He was different than a lot of the people that came before him, but then you were seeing these concepts mirrored almost, I guess I would say in philosophy and poetry. Is that kind of a rough way of saying that? No, I think that's right. I mean, in, in an interesting way. So you would think that the physicist, would be the one who's sort of in a, in a way the least responsible to or responsive uh, to the history of thought. Because what matters, and at least for our modern understanding of science, what matters about physics is um, experimentation and then coming up with an adequate uh, explanation for uh, experimental results, um, putting that into a context um, of perhaps recent uh, recent scientific papers. But what what struck me was that in explaining the unexplainable, um, that what Heisenberg eventually did was turn to philosophy. Um, And this was despite the fact that uh, many of his contemporaries considered him, quote unquote, unphilosophical. Um, They were all grappling with big philosophical issues. But when they called him unphilosophical, what they meant was, he had a particular philosophical take, which was not one that they were recognizing. Because when they were referring to Heisenberg as unphilosophical, his his contemporaries were saying, well, he's not trying to picture what's happening inside an atom. And the rest of us, were trying to figure out what's going on there. Uh, well, Heisenberg was. He was very much picturing what was going on inside the atom. He wasn't picturing it in a form of uh, of pictures that um, his contemporaries, many of his contemporaries, or most of us, would accept as 
a picture of reality. In other words, he was willing to accept that reality at the microscopic, at the atomic level, does not behave the way that we expect it to based on our experiences in the class, in the world of classical physics. And that was a radical move on, uh, on his part. And it was one that then retroactively, I was able to say, you know what, this is extremely similar to what Kant said about our relationship to the ultimate nature of reality. And it's extremely similar to what Borges worked out through a series of stories um, and stories that would ultimately lead to the, in fact, the title of this, um, of this book. Yeah, and I've highlighted some parts and some sections that um, maybe I'll ask you about in the book. I have to say, as much as I've loved reading this, I'm not a philo- I was not a philosophy major, so a lot of this stuff, I get the ideas, but I'm not fully sure how to explain them to a, a, a podcast listener. So perhaps you could help us out with that. Um, sure. I guess what I would say is the revolution of Heisenberg noticing that in certain spheres, this is what I was catching the gist of from the book, like gravity and all of these laws sort of seem to play out in our like 3D world out here, but on a microscopic level or way out in space, mm-hmm. they are different. Mm-hmm. Is that what he was sort of saying with some yeah, of his I mean, study? I mean- um, Heisenberg's very specific discovery starting in 1925 and then shortly thereafter in 1927, uh, he produced his most famous paper, but he already won when he won the Nobel Prize for Physics. He won it principally for the paper that he uh, he wrote in 1925. His discovery was, um, or his, his, his special move, if you will, in physics, was to pay attention to the before and after measurements of uh, spectrographic measurements of positions of electrons. Uh, in 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 an atom, um, what had already been realized prior to this was, uh, and this is already in Niels Bohr's his mentor's uh, uh, model of of atomic shells, is that electrons have different energy levels, and they can change if you pump a, an atom full of uh, of energy. That you can you can hype up, if you will, the behavior of the electrons, but they they always fall at a particular distance, if you will. They always cluster or they swarm around uh, around. A, um, uh, a nucleus at a particular distance, depending on the energy level. And what's really b- bizarre about it, so you can imagine, this is the way that uh, people used to imagine, uh, this is not entirely accurate, but it's helpful as a heuristic, the model of an atom being something like the model of our solar system, a nucleus, and then uh, a variety of, of orbits around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the fundamental difference, and it really is a fundamental difference, is that those subatomic particles, like electrons, they can be in the orbit of, say, Earth or the orbit of Mars, and they can sometimes change from the orbit of Earth to the orbit of Mars, but they don't seem to exist between those two places. And uh, this was already known. What Heisenberg did was to calculate uh, and come up with the actual formula that it, that would express and predict the movements from one to the other. And he was able to do so in part by accepting this philosophical point that at the micro, uh, uh, at the atomic level, there's no need to account for the position of something until you've measured it. Uh, and that, in fact, even further, he went on to speculate, which ended up being experimentally proven to be true, that particles can't be said. It makes no sense logically to say that they have a position or have had a position as they get from point A to point B until you measure them. And it's only at the moment that you measure and observe them that it makes sense to say that they now have taken a particular path. This was 
incomprehensible. I mean, it still is for most people. And part of what I'm trying to do with this book is make it comprehensible to say the reason that we find it, or in Richard Feynman's famous words, uh, 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 something along the lines of um, no one can make sense of quantum, uh, quantum mechanics, right? The idea that it just fundamentally doesn't make sense, that this is true only insofar as we approach the the, the data of quantum mechanics with a certain notion of reality in mind. And it's that notion of reality that space and time exist independent of us, that motion by particles of all sizes through space and time occurs on, on paths, and those paths exist whether they're being observed or not, that this is not an adequate uh, understanding of reality for understanding uh, uh, quantum mechanics. Yeah, and I've there's a lot of people that have talked about the fact that we have now found upwards of 60, I'm going to butcher this, but 60 something subatomic particles beneath the atom, or is it, is it more, or beneath the electrons? Is it more than that? No. Yeah. Below yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Below that level for sure there. And they correspond to energy levels. In other words, the higher you pump your energy physics, the more the potential of finding what are considered called heavier and heavier particles that otherwise because mass is equivalent to energy. If you don't have the energy to produce them in a lab, you're not going to actually find them. Mm. Right. And then there's the quarks that seem to spring in and out of our perception of reality at, at a small level. And we don't know how they can jump from one side to the room or the other, whatever, one side of the particle to the other. So that's something else that is... and that that's that's the very same phenomenon that already in the case of electrons, um, Heisenberg was studying and, and was coming up with with a theory for, which is, yes, we call them quantum leaps or quantum jumps. Um, but essentially, it, it is at the fundamental level of matter and energy. Um, until you make a measurement, a particle doesn't have a location, which means that it can be theoretically anywhere until you've made a measurement. And uh, and hence, that's this is the, the very phenomena that accounts for leaping or jumping. Uh, if it can be anywhere until you've made a measurement, that means it can be potentially over here or potentially over there. Or in what's called quantum tunneling, uh, a particle can theoretically be on one side of a barrier, but there's some percentage chance that it could be on the other side of the barrier when you measure you make a measurement it appears over there and you call and you say that the particle has tunneled through the uh through the barrier but that's not something that the 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 particle did it didn't actually build a tunnel or create you know create a passage from one side to the other it was following the principle that uh that heisenberg discovered which is when you measure it it's only at that point that it uh that that it has a trajectory that it has a path right and that is Difficult to understand, but I think that is probably why it was so controversial at the time. Uh, and so I had a a passage here that I it was actually in the introduction. Your introduction was very rich. Um, and there was this large, I guess, analogy or story about Zeno <laughs> and uh Achilles and uh, Borges was was thinking about that, and I'll read the quote, but maybe if you could kind of explain, sure, it was like the tortoise versus Achilles and how they came across, how they, yeah, if you can kind of go with that. Oh, I will. No, no, uh, gladly. So this is the uh, one of the famous expositions of what are called Zeno's paradoxes. And the, the purpose of Zeno's paradoxes were to pro- prove, uh, sort of through negative uh, proofs, through uh, 
uh, ad absurdum uh, proofs that um, something along the lines of change or motion is impossible. Um, so this seems like a completely absurd notion. And the people that he was arguing with 2,500 years ago uh, in the uh, in the in the uh, um, in the agora uh, also took it as such. And yet he was saying, "Look, we're philosophers, so take me on my word. You have to try, and you can't just say." It's ridiculous what I'm saying. You have to show me where the fault in the reasoning is. And so this was uh, uh, presented to Socrates, and Socrates um, went through a series of, of back and forths with uh, with Zeno and his master Parmenides at the time. So I I, I, I tell the story um, in part because of how much it fascinated Borges. And the, the problem that Zeno presented as one of the many ones for his proof that motion uh, change is, um, is illusory is he said, look, imagine... Achilles in a race with a tortoise. Uh, and Achilles gives the tortoise a head start. The problem is, we think Achilles is faster than the tortoise, but if you actually think about it mathematically, Achilles will never catch up with the tortoise. And everyone said, What are you, what are you talking about? Well, and he said, it's 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 quite simple. You let the tortoise get 10 meters ahead of Achilles, and then Achilles takes off. In the time that it takes Achilles to get to the 10-meter mark, the tortoise has moved a little bit forward. Now focus in on that. Do the exact same thing again. Maybe it's maybe it's 10 millimeters now. At some point it will be. In the time that it takes Achilles to cross that distance, the tortoise has again gone forward. Anytime you start to think about time and space as infinitely divisible, you're going to run into this problem that, that in fact, uh, uh, it should be an infinite amount of time to uh, pass. Well, the answer and before the one passes, yeah, the the answer to that, in some sense, in calculus, is that it's not an infinite amount of time, as uh, John Stuart Mill said, and Borges was responding to him. He said, "Yes, it will take forever, but that forever will already be over within twelve seconds, uh, and then something else is going to happen." And Borges brilliantly at, at, at answered to that. That's that's not an answer to the problem. It's an exposition of the problem. The problem is still there. Why is it that we run into that uh, into that uh, uh, difficulty? And the point of telling that story is that these issues of um, apparent paradox, where we have on the one hand Achilles is clearly going to win the race, and on the other, when we analyze it uh, mathematically, we seem to come up with this infinite uh, uh, abyss that Achilles and the tortoise are falling into in space and time. How do they get around it? Kant, when thinking about space and time, basically proved that any time that we try to imagine something that's taking place in space and time as if it were external to space and time, or vice versa, we're going to fall into precisely that kind of a paradox. And he called these the antinomies, and then these antinomies are how I tell the story of that's that's throughout the book, how I structure the book in the end. Yes, and uh, I'll, I'll quote the book because, you know, it was quite an interesting paradox to me. The paradox of Zeno, Borges wrote, is an attempt upon not only the reality of space, but the more invulnerable and sheer reality of time, existence in a physical body, immobile permanence, the flow of an afternoon in life are challenged by such an adventure. Like Heisenberg, working feverishly on the other side of the world, as he explored the limits of perception, Borges peered into the abyss of an apparent paradox. And like Heisenberg, instead of shying away from his paradox, he chose to re-examine his most basic assumptions about time, space, and causality. And I think what you're saying a lot here in the beginning of the book is that, and I guess this is probably a big point, is that all three of these characters were willing to 
kind of used the scientific method in the most purest form, I suppose. I don't know if they knew they were doing it, but mm-hmm. essentially away from that confirmation bias, uh, saying, I, I think I'm wrong. Uh, I think we could all be wrong. Maybe we need to look at this a different way. So I'm not sure if you want to, I mean, you kind of already explained that part, but um, what are your thoughts I, on, on that? Yeah, no, I think, I think the way that you just put it uh, in terms of confirmation bias is a really neat way of putting it. We have a confirmation bias about our most fundamental kind of image of the world or picture of the world. And one of those as, and this is kind of a quotation of Borges. Uh, one of those images of the world is that it's ubic- the world being everything, space, if you will, and uh, uh, the universe. That it's ubiquitous in space and 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 uh, um, steady in time. Right. That, mm-hmm. that things last. That 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 uh, if we're going to measure change, it's against a kind of permanent backdrop of being. That space and time are something in which things occur and uh, uh and and if we use them as measurements they're measurements of things that take place right one thing after another what borges and and uh, through his stories what kant through his philosophy what heisenberg in his uh minute analysis of 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 physical exp- of the results of physical experimentation all kind of ran up against was the idea that space and time to a certain extent are qualities that we as measurers of the world bring with us and these assumptions once we make the make the mistake if you will of projecting these assumptions about how the world is out into the world we're going to run into problems it's going to make us think that our experiments are producing paradoxical results it's going to produce paradoxes in uh in in philosophy and it's going to produce what borges beautifully called interstices of unreason uh that he said were there to remind us and that his fiction is really a way of delving into and exploring to remind us that the world that we live in is to a certain extent always a world that we've dreamed up that we've created that we've built or made to our own measure oh that's really great the way you put that because now this brings me into where I'm a little bit uh, where my expertise lies in psychology. And so perhaps this is a projection, but possibly a theory that humans and the thought evolution, um, you know, going back thousands of years, uh, looking at, you know, first the world was flat, then the world was the center of the universe, uh, then the God was in the sky or on the mountain, and then, uh, you know, the the rain meant this and this meant that and 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 it depends on where you are in the world right so native americans they believed there was like spirits in every single possible thing like everything had uh it's like uh can't remember what they call it pan spiritualism everything has a sacredness right and it's all part of this story that we're in and so part of me though goes to the psychology of the way that people were grappling with science and the nature of reality was that it's actually very scary to think about the world in a non-fixed sort of way, because yeah. then are we safe, right? Like if the world, if the planet Earth, according to me, looking outside right now, doesn't seem to be hurtling through space at how many thousands of miles an hour orbiting some burning up you know, star and have a thin atmosphere, if I didn't know that, I'm like, oh, it looks pretty nice out there. I, I think that's great. But when you turn in all those other things, it's it's impossible for me to comprehend it. I've never been on a space shuttle and seen that, right. you know, right. 
right. or even any moment of that. Uh, and so I think it, it is a fear factor as well. It's, it's a, it's a denial. I want to be in denial. I don't want to think about hurtling through space and that, mm-hmm. wait a minute. In fact, not only our solar system is hurtling through space, the galaxy, which we find ourselves in is hurtling through space. And possibly at the middle of that is a black hole mm-hmm. and possibly that could collide with another galaxy. And if that happens, we're really in for it. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, these sort of things, I think the, the average people and even the scientists at the time, it was, it was frightening perhaps, uh, especially during Kant's time, especially frightening because they were kind of coming out of an era where there was a sky god dominant idea uh, mm-hmm. that sort of held the world in the hands of the sky god and the sky god would you know pick up pick and choose the winners and losers so uh, that that was my projection or theory on that I'm not sure if you have anything that you want to add to that well, I think I think your idea of, of sort of uh, coming up with or what the safety blanket that you're describing is one of comfort, right? It's right. Um, we 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 stick with the set of beliefs that we have because they're the more comfortable belief. And I think a great example from the stories that I'm I'm recounting in this book about that is, in some ways, one could argue the most stunningly brilliant of perhaps all of the characters is not even one who ends up in the title. We know him as as and have he's he's, he's sort of gone down in history as the most brilliant man of the. Tw- 20th century, and that's Albert Einstein. What's interesting about the story that I'm telling is that Einstein, in almost all of these debates, ends up being wrong. Um, but he ends up being wrong in extremely interesting ways. Uh, and in fact, in being wrong uh, on some of these debates, um, Einstein was sort of the only character I can think of who could be wrong and do so in a way that would actually push science forward, because he would think so clearly and, and put out these these thought experiments in a way that was so crystal clear that it caused everyone, forced everyone to really take stock of uh, of, of what they were claiming in their um in in in, in their interpretations, for example, in the interpretations of quantum mechanics. In the case of Einstein, you can see this very clearly because he was so outspoken about his beliefs and his, if you will, philosophizing about what the physics was at the time. And so when these very famous sentences of, 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 of Einstein's about the old one does not play, or I refuse to believe the old one plays dice with the universe, um, even though he was pretty much an atheist, what that tells us is precisely what you're describing as kind of a safety blanket, right? It was uncomfortable even for someone who had discovered the principles of, of, of special and general relative relativity, even for someone who had himself um, launched the quantum age by the discovery that light can be both a particle and, uh, and, and a wave and has property of both. These were all discoveries by the same guy. And yet he himself was unwilling to fully come to grips with his own discoveries uh, and and that's in some ways, you know, when Heisenberg, in my take, uh, wins out on some of these uh, debates, the fundamental difference is that he has what I describe in the book and what Kant also had and what Borges had was an uncommon willingness to accept kind of the appearances uh, and, and the results of experimentation or the results of their thought um, processes, uh, uh, even when they ran in the face of, and even when they undermine these long-held certainties about the way the world must be. Yes, excellent way of putting it. Um, We've been talking a lot about Heisenberg, uh, and so I kind of wanted to get a little bit into Kant, which he's a tough one to understand. 
uh, he's so <laughs> smart and, you know, growing up, I, I love the story about him growing up and kind of people like seeing that early on in his life and sending him off to this horrible boarding school. But, um, mm. I, I guess I'm still in the beginning of all my, all my papers here, but, uh, with Kant, you were talking about the critique of pure reason and, and this is something you, that you wrote and then we'll see what, and this is sort of kind of going off what we were just talking about. Kant managed to work out in his critique of pure reason is something so profound that few people fully grasp its implications even today. Hume, which is another philosopher you talk about, and pretty much everyone else had made an unwarranted assumption about what goes on when we perceive something. The assumption is that we are correct in visualizing reality in itself as being consistent with our image of it. But our perceptions, Kant realized, aren't things in the world. Rather, they are versions of those things that we construct in our minds by shaping them in space and time. When we imagine the world as being identical to our conception of it, when we assume specifically that space and time are fundamentally real, our reason becomes faulty and science responds with paradox. Of course, he didn't stop there, I'm paraphrasing. In the second half of the book, he went on to describe the de in detail the paradoxes that pop up when we fail to make this distinction and mistakenly assume that time and space are inherent. He called one class, what you said earlier, which I'm going to butcher, the antinomies? Antinomies. Antinomies, thank you. Mm -hmm. Those crevices of unreason that Borges credited with confirming the hallucinatory nature of the world. Specifically, Kant wrote, we can picture reality as being cons consistent and continuous or as being broken into discrete chunks. And we can make perfectly logical and coherent arguments supporting both conclusions, even though those conclusions explicitly contradict each other. This happens mm -hmm. because we assume something about reality that only comes into play when we observe it, going back to what we were talking about earlier. So any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. This is the the key, right? The, the critique of pure reason, which took him like a decade to get into its final form, and probably more if you think about all of the thinking that went in uh, uh, prior to his even getting started on writing it, has is rightfully considered to be one of the most important books in the history of philosophy. And the first part of the book is describing precisely how we construct the world in the form of what he calls the, uh, uh, the pure forms of intuition, which are space and time. Uh, when we assume, however, that the world in and of itself without our intervention, prior to our looking at it, prior to our making observations, is also structured in that same way, that space and time are not our ways of intuiting how the world is, of making sense, of putting it into form, but rather that space and time are out there in the world, then we're going to run the, we're going to run into paradoxes and these paradoxes as i said one of the forms of the paradoxes that he describes are antinomies and antinomies precisely um, the example that you were just quoting from there is a kind of antinomy that physics runs into and examines the very very small uh the antinomy of well are you going to come down to a fundamental particle that you can't break or is there is possible that you can break every one down and then divide it further and divide it further and so kant long before there was any kind of a means, long before there were electron microscopes, long before there were atom smashers or anything like that, Kant could kind of go through this experiment um, in his mind. Uh, and he uh, brilliantly, amazingly, 150 years before there was even the um, experimental means to start doing something like this, he started coming up with the similar paradoxes that, that, that uh, high energy physics would be running into in the 20th century. Uh, in other words, he discovered a an antinomy there. And the antinomy is 
something that you can make a perfectly reasonable argument for one thing and a personally uh, perfectly reasonable argument for its exact opposite. And in and of themselves, neither of those arguments break down. So how can that possibly be the case? And uh, the 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 one about what's called the atomistic uh, um, uh, antinomy that I, we're discussing right here is you can make an argument that any uh, uh, um, uh, any measurement of the world can be divided in half, can be divided further in half, and this can go on and on for infinity, which is what what Zeno was doing in his uh in his in his dialectics around uh uh the question of movement or you can make an argument that there is uh, an ultimate level beyond which you cannot um uh break the world down that there are fundamental atoms and that these can't be broken down each of those is a perfectly upstanding fine argument to be made on its own and yet they come in radical contradiction with each other and kant's realization was they come into contradiction with each other necessarily because we're taking something that isn't in space or time because it's everything namely the entirety of the universe and we're trying to think about it as if it were something you could break down in space or time. And that's a fundamental, that's a category mistake. Whenever you try and do something like that, you're going to run into uh, uh, errors and paradoxes of that kind. Yes, I love this idea because, not that I could write this book, but there are many parallels to modern psychology in what I would say uh, is this error that humans make. <laughs> humans have been making forever and most humans still make which is that humans are separate from nature mm-hmm. and that is a story that comes from multiple religions although i don't think we're in, actually in the original scripts that's sort of a modern interpretation of most uh, religions is that humans are the special creature that is removed from nature that has been given nature in some way I'm quoting Christianity. It's not, it's, that's the main one. There's yeah. other ones that have similar takes. And when you do that, there is a bit of what I would call a dissociation from the self. Mm-hmm. And that the self is part of nature, is a natural thing. And there's even more so a disassociation from the body and intuition, right? Mm-hmm. And intuition and the body are something that um, in the modern world, in the cities, uh, in the way we live now is um kind of becoming a lost art although it's a, there's a who knows what there's not one truth we're in like this weird era where of course at the same time what's becoming popularized is yoga and breathwork classes and things right. to kind of help you regulate yourself so this idea that humans are separate from nature and that also when humans say things such as well this is the way it is and Mm -hmm. this is what history says and Mm -hmm. this is um, the right way to think and this is the wrong way to live these sort of things reminded me of that because they are a sort of assumptive narrative that whoever has the loudest horn or (laughs) or most Mm -hmm. charisma is correct about the nature of reality when in fact there isn't really an objective reality like mm-hmm. there like you can see this like whenever there's a crime committed right and and there's multiple witnesses everyone has a different version of the reality and the only version of reality that we guess we could say is quote correct according to the human terms is the video camera footage of this crime which even then is up to 
interpretation. Uh, interpretation because we don't exactly maybe we, we, it wasn't a cinematic thing. It was a security camera. It wasn't like filmed from multiple angles, and we don't know the motivations of those involved. And so when I was reading this, at some point in the book, you were sort of talking about how Kant. If excuse me if I'm wrong here, but he was sort of railing against the idea of this objective truth and objective reason in a, in a way. It's, but it's an important uh, nuance that we have to make here. Yeah. Kant was in some ways rescuing something along the lines of objectivity, but with right. a very special caveat to it, right? Kant said, look, he was he was reacting to, you mentioned him before, but uh, the, the Scottish empiricist David Hume. And, yeah. and, and Hume was, was uh, through kind of a threw a grenade into um the the self-satisfied rationalism of the uh of the late 17th and and, and early 18th century which really said look the world functions ac- according to these perfect laws those laws are also inside us reason we can figure it out it's just a question of working it all out and david hume said basically the opposite he said what a bunch of of, of hooey uh, uh what what arrogance on the part of of humanity what you have is an impression in the here and now a flash in the pan um you think that you get used to it you get used to waking up in the morning and seeing the sun all that is is habit it could easily wake up tomorrow and there'd be nothing Nothing, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no laws of nature. All there is 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 you getting used to things in a certain way that could change at any particular time. This was the kind of philosophy that, um, in Kant's own reckoning, uh, he said woke him up from his dogmatic slumber. When so by dogmatic he meant he was kind of a rationalist like everyone else at the time. And he read this and he said, "Oh my God, what am I going to do about this?" And so he set out to put science on some kind of a, to use this word, objective footing. But it couldn't be that old rationalist way of saying, yes, we ultimately do have access to the way things are in the world, reality as it is in itself. Reality will ultimately correspond to this reasonable map that we make of it uh, in our mind. He had to let that go because of the power of David Hume's philosophical attack on it. However, what he was able to do was he was able to rescue a kind of objectivity, which we could call sort of a um, communal objectivity. It's the idea when you're describing this scene of the the scene of the crime. Well, what is it that's objective in the end? Is, is it really, do we just say we all have our own version? Well, ultimately, we have standards. We have standards of evidence. We have uh, um, uh, ways that communities come together and make decisions, and those decisions Ultimately, then they can maybe be appealed, but then there's standards for appeal. In other words, there's a community that then ultimately decides what the truth is or what uh, uh, actually happened uh, or what the law of nature is. And as long as we have the humility to say we keep on applying these standards, we keep them open to uh, reason, we keep them open to critique, as long as we're able to do that, Kant would argue, yes, we have something along the lines of objectivity, which is to to say it's not each on his own. It's not everyone just throwing out whatever interpretation that you want. No, there's standards for argumentation, and those standards actually come from the fact that we are beings who have to communicate with each other, uh, and that if everyone had exactly their own version all the time, we'd actually not be getting any kind of conversation done at all. Yes, that uh, that does exist and the universe of internet commenters. Um, right. <laughs> so that's a fun fact. If you ever really want to get ill, just read YouTube and 
social media comments or, or comments on the uh, news articles. They're real fun. But yes, I, I totally love that you said that because I was, I, I love that because I, I uh, yes, exactly. It's, it's something about that shared objectivism versus we have the exact answer. That's, we don't, we could, the exact answer changes with new information. That's and, and, and we believing, have standards of the scientific that it method. Doesn't, that's that? what I, believing that it, that um, that it doesn't is what Kant called fanaticism. Right. And that, yes. And he, his whole approach was to ward off, to give us kind of guardrails against fanaticism on the one hand and paradox and error on the other hand. Right. And it's like those two extremes in uh, in psychology. We see the we see the two dialectics uh, in some uh, symptomatic illnesses or i guess whatever you call them states of being i think they are more would be rigidity and chaos yeah, that humans yeah, or, are going between par- paranoia and schizophrenia or right right, right. yeah like the rigidity is i'm anxious i'm over here i'm i'm yeah. controlling i i need to be safe and chaos is this utter so so yeah it, he was he was playing with the dialectics so i'm i'm glad that uh that you you covered that so another thing since we've you've been hinting at this which is a big point of the book is to not believe they had the temptation to know, quote, God's secret plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess this is where you got the title of the book was from Borges uh, writing where he wrote, uh, but humanity has forgotten and continues for, to forget that it is the rigor of chess masters, not of angels. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that a little bit? I, I, I thought sure. there were so many ways to look at that. But, uh, there is, and it's a, it's a beautiful story. When I teach this story to uh, my my students, I often preface it by saying, I don't know what you're going to think, but this is, uh, for me, probably one of the greatest short stories, if not the greatest short story ever written. It's, uh, it's a short story called Plun Bukbar Orbis Tertius. Um, it's about 10 pages long. He wrote it in the early 1940s in the midst of World War II. He ends this story... And it's a story about a secret society, basically, a secret society that sets out to um, uh, 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 to create an entire culture, a world, uh, an alien civilization, um, and to do so uh, from the ground up, to create its language, to create its its histories, its mythologies, its encyclopedias, and everything like that. Um, and uh, uh, what Borges imagines is the creation of a world of such extraordinary rigor um that uh it's uh, that and he and the way that he he does this is, is a kind of eerie it's almost like a um a science fiction story because he jumps into his own future and he writes a postscript um seven years later so 1947 um and and from the vantage of this postscript uh he describes a world that has basically been um invaded by this idea and where reality itself has started to give away so objects that are imagined um suddenly become real and they're objects that that really they they don't abide by what we understand to be the laws of physics so if you will the fabric of reality is torn apart by this perfect imagined world right that's the that's the idea behind it and and the way the narrator of the story kind of rationalizes or or explains this is he says the problem is that the way we we society we that society at the time but he also implies us all of us the way that we tend to imagine reality is it, it's going to give way it's going to give way under the pressures of of fundamentalisms of fanaticisms of people who think that they have the ultimate answer for us why because 
We forget and we forget again that the rigor that we find in the world is a rigor that we bring into the world. That's the rigor of, of chess masters. But we forget and we think it's a rigor of angels. We think that the angels created that rigor, that, that time and space uh, uh, pre-exist our entrance into the world, that, that, that the tools that we use to analyze the world are in fact in the world the way that they are in and of themselves and that that is a problem this is with the the what's so amazing about borges's fictional analysis precisely that kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that he and this is borges saying and not me because the, remember the time that he's writing this is during world war ii that he says leads to political perversions like anti-semitism like nazism uh uh, uh and he lists several others in the uh in in the very context of the story. So he's drawing precisely those kind of conclusions that our tendency to think that the world awaits us with all of its rules um, intact and that we don't bring that rigor to the world is potentially the same kind of way of thinking that's going to lead us to fanaticism, fundamentalism, and to a kind of violence that we exert on each other. Hmm. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. There is this... uh... I've been reading a few other books recently about um, just the way the human ego functions. And obviously that's still a theory and the ego is a theory, but, but the idea of it being that let's say there's two different countries that have been at war for hundreds of years. And because of all these traumas of killing each other, they, that at some point, they don't they lose the view of their shared humanity and they completely rationalize and justify the killing of children and anyone like uh i can't remember who did this but there was somebody who who executed everyone with glasses because he thought they were intellectuals was that in your book but that sounds like Mao Mao Zedong. yeah that's who it was yes And, and so like this sort of extremism exists when humans believe they have this absolute correctness and that's the fanaticism that sort of comes in we're losing you know the shared learning you know or our shared progression together and that we are people and we are i don't know still every day figuring it out what in the world that always figuring it out exactly and when you think you've already got the answer and you don't need to figure it out anymore that's when that's that's when the real problems start right that's when yeah i always i always joke and in psychology with my uh, supervisees, I say, whenever you think you have a person figured out, that means you're wrong and you need to stop and you need to realize that you don't know anything about them. So that's when you got to start over. <laughs> but uh, exactly. Yeah. But back to the book here, uh, this podcast has psychology and philosopher listeners. So that's why I throw in those things. Um, the This is the same, I guess, the same problem of being in it right? We're in it and we're assuming that these things were here, but they weren't here. We made them up. Um, it was the manuscript of 1942, same time of period of Borges was writing the story. We have the Heisenberg's manuscript yeah. and it wasn't appeared until I guess the seventies when they found it. Yeah. And he was working on a fission reactor for Germany at the time, um, because of, well, you in the 1940s, he was. yeah, yeah. Right. Um, As Heisenberg describes the basic problem in his 1942 manuscript, science translates reality into thought, which is pretty cool. I thought I like that. And but and humans need language to think. Language, language, however, suffers from the same fundamental limitation that Heisenberg discovered in nature. We can focus our language down to 
highly objective degrees where it becomes particularly well-defined and hence useful for scientists studying the natural world. But to the extent that we do so, we necessarily lose another essential aspect of words, namely their ability to have multiple meanings depending on how we use them. Um, he goes on to talk about uh, the first language is static and the second is dynamic. And so I felt like that kind of fit with what you were saying about, you know, we made up language, right? It, and, and language, perhaps, for, according to evolution, anthropologists was not something we even fully developed in the way that we do it now. Uh, you know, there was a lot of eye movements and pointing and maybe songs or who knows what going on. And that's why psychologists still say today that according to, I mean, these completely ridiculous measurements that something about like people are noticing more how you say it and the, and the way your gestures are and the way your face moves more than the actual words and that the mm -hmm. words are secondary, but most people you would never, you know, most of us would never perceive that as true. Um, so I guess thoughts about, that I well one one caveat just little psychology nugget is that Jung Carl Jung thought about that a lot and wrote about that humans thought and were able to make meaning he believed easier with symbols right and archetypes uh, and symbols of archetypes rather than words so anyway yeah. back to you yeah so I mean Heisenberg was writing the 1942 manuscript and this is again one of those examples of, uh, of how I try to demonstrate that Heisenberg is in many ways despite what his colleagues thought about him at the time that he was unphilosophical was in fact extremely philosophical he was searching constantly for the ramifications the impact the ultimate meaning of his discoveries on, on the world and he was arguing with philosophers and uh, really getting into it. The 1942 manuscript, he circulated uh, to friends and colleagues at the time. He felt that it could have gotten him in trouble with the uh, with the Nazi government that was already seeking, you know, ways to get him demoted or thrown out of the university uh, for, for, for various reasons. Um, and uh, this manuscript is absolutely fascinating. And my, my favorite part of it, indeed, is about, and I discussed that in the book, this realization that Heisenberg comes to, that the same problem that he's discovering in nature that you can either look at uh or sort of you can focus in and this is the the famous um formulation of the uncertainty principle is that you can focus in uh on, and 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 reduce the delta reduce the uh uh, uh the variance of your measurement of a particle's position to zero, so you know exactly where it is. But if you do so, you lose all sense of what its momentum is, or you can focus in entirely on its momentum and you lose all sense of where it might be in the world. And uh, uh, and and there's no way of of splitting that. There's no way of getting that uh, of ironing that difference out. It's not a it's not a bug that's uh, uh, that's kind of slipped into our way of looking at the world. It's actually a feature of reality itself. That's in a nutshell the uncertainty principle. Here was Heisenberg thinking about all the different ways, all the different filters that we have, uh, that we necessarily have for understanding reality. And he was putting his finger on language as being one of the most fundamental ones. And in so doing, he was locating in language itself something very much along the lines of his uncertainty principle. He said, look, you can really focus in on the exact meaning of things. Uh, and that's what how physicists like to use language. But in so doing, you're going to lose 
fundamentally lose something else that language gives us that allows us to do things with those insights, right? To come up with theories, to make sense of, to interpret. Uh, and he called all of that work that language is doing for us that allows thought to take place. He called that the, uh, the, the dynamic or the poetic, uh, side of language. And he said, really, our, our interaction with the world depends on both. But because it depends on both, we can never have an absolutely pure, perfect, uh, uh, um, uh, distilled exact language for the world, nor, nor thought for the world. It's always going to suffer from the same kind of blurring, if you will, a kind of minimal blurring that he discovered to be at the heart of reality itself. Wonderful. Yes, that's a very good way of saying it. I want to ask you a question just about some of your favorite things. But before I do, one last dialectic I I was really excited about was, because I'm huge into psychology nerd here, uh, is when Kant's friend died, this is kind of like more of the biographical part you were talking about, Kant's friend Funk died. And he was having a great time before that. He was, you know, lecturing, you know, going to Cedar, staying out yeah. late. <laughs> he was. He was uh, living the living a great social life, and then uh, then he fell into a, he spiraled. He fell into a deep depression after that. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 this is what you said here in the book. Uh, Kant was becoming increasingly convinced that humans. Oh, I'm sorry. After losing his friend, you know, mm-hmm. and and also his other friendship uh, with Green. Kant was becoming increasingly convinced that humans simultaneously occupied two radically separate realms. One realm was dominated by the relative and shifting logic of time and space, while the other was guided by unchanging truths. And yet, strangely, the one realm somehow necessitated the other. Moreover, this division of human existence into two incompatible and yet mutually indispensable realms implicated all aspects of our endeavors. While he could not yet articulate his insight with the crisp, devastating logic to come, his writing and lecturing increasingly strove towards an idea that would not only clarify the nature of human knowledge, but also provide a map, a roadmap for a more practical question of how to determine a basis for morality. And there's more, that's pages of gold. There's way more there, but thoughts on that. Well, I can tell you the whole story of how that works out, but that's sort of the the second part of the book. A, yeah, we don't want to do that. We're, that's a that's a preview. This is an appetizer. <laughs> that's not, that's not right. The meal. <laughs> exactly. But yes, indeed, what Kant, you know, the the excitement of reading Kant and the excitement of seeing, you know, the development of these ideas in the context of his life is the realization that all of these areas of philosophy, be it describing how we can know the world as it is, describing what the experience of beauty is in the world and ultimately figuring out is there something like moral rectitude that we can depend on and know what the right thing to do is that all of these are tied together and uh and that they they they, they come together in one of the most elegant perhaps the most elegant system of thought of of, of pure thought that's ever been uh been made and the point that i'm making in the book that um these insights are then relevant to the kinds of discussions that we have about physics, the kind of discussions that we have about uh, about literature as well. Yes, excellent. And so for the listeners out there, we have been discussing for one hour, probably just the introduction in chapter one. Uh, just to let you know, I had a lot of notes all over the place, but there is no way to get to all of them. So I'm just going to give you a little preview for the listener here. Um, you broke it down in the in the table of contents, but also in this pamphlet that I was sent. But you have a whole part one called Standing on a Sliver of Time, and you're talking all about all the things we just talked about. I'm not right. even going to, we can't probably preview all this, but part two is Not Being God, 
which and and you're interweaving all of them throughout all the all the three characters uh real characters part three does the universe have an edge which sounds really fun i'm not there yet that's where i kind of left off and number four the abyss of freedom and just all of these and, and again going through their lives um you know kind of because I guess, especially during the last part, Heisenberg is defending his decisions during the war and yes. and, and yes. things like that. So I, I guess to the listener out there, um, I definitely recommend picking up this book because it is not your typical uh, dry philosophical academic book. It's, it's a story and you can learn by, uh, that's the side effect. You're going to learn and your brain is going to hurt because my brain has been hurting all week, uh, not from... <laughs> any sort of substances, but just from, I, it's hard to conceive. Of it. Yeah. 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 To grapple with these ideas. I hear you. Yeah. Uh. And the two realms, I guess, for the psychology people out there, I would say is something we see in our practices every day in, in that we have one part of the person where we're trying to help them become more uh, entangled, if you will, with the present moment and how their body is and how their breathing is and what their habits are and what's going on in the micro of their life, because that can really help your mental health. But if you don't attend to the macro, the environment, who you're hanging around with, um, you know, what air you're breathing, what kind of mattress you sleep on, what sort of, you know, health is your body in, uh, and, and your relatives and, and the people you engage with, that can also you know, completely devastated. So it's like the, it's like an intersection, right? Like a Venn diagram, but there's even more factors in psychology. But if you think about that, we're contending between those two worlds as well. And this is definitely a really gross juxtaposition with the philosophy uh, portion of the book. But I think that knowing philosophy and learning about it and learning about physics and learning about what the poets say, because that's what makes life interesting is poetry and music and art and well, that's not one. That's one of the things that makes life interesting, but it, it really paints a picture. Knowing about these things helps you not only in life, even if you're not a philosopher, and it also helps you in your own personal psychology, whether or not you're a psychologist or just an average listener to the podcast. So I, that's that's my pitch for the book. Um, I wanted to to ask you, um, Professor uh, Bill, about what is one of your favorite things that's come so far out of writing this book? What's your, one of your favorite occurrences or events that, or, or personal events that's happened so, because of so this? I, I've obviously read and thought a lot about these issues for a long, long time. But, but you know, and I, I did a lot of math and, and science as a younger, uh, a younger student. Um, but then I clearly went into literature and that's my field is comparative literature and I'm a professor of humanities at Johns Hopkins. Um, and in order to write this book and really give it kind of the umph that it needed, I sp had to spend a lot of time reading up on, on physics, even though I'm not a physicist. And I have to say, one of the great kind of moments for me was the realization that I could explain and even come to some, inter some of the most up-to-date interpretations of quantum mechanics, not from the perspective of someone having studied the physics themselves, but rather from the perspective of being a reader of Kant, of being a reader of Borges, a reader of the history of philosophy, a reader of the history of literature, and thinking through with as much intensity as possible some of these, these fundamental ideas. And that one could glean or derive some of these uh, ideas and discoveries 
from thinking and reading literature and thought and then still make, and, and not just still, but maybe as a result, make very coherent interventions into the interpretation of, of modern physics. That was, for me, an extremely important insight. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's excellent. Um, uh, and I know that you've got multiple, how many, how many books have you written? It looked to be almost Nine. 10. <laughs> Nine? Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I've got oh. this one coming out next month. I've got a, a one after that. I think that's the tenth book that I've uh, I've written. But there's others that I've um, that I've edited or translated. So I, I would need to check that to be. Don't quote me on it. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not because I can't even myself was having trouble counting in this document I was reading. Uh, but I think that is a, a good gift you're giving to the people out there because, uh, to be fair, uh, this is my little joke. Unless, you know, there's always a library, so go to the library if you have no money. But if you have money and you've gone to a coffee shop any time in the last couple of weeks, you have spent enough money to buy this book. So um, this book will last you a lot longer um, and you can have coffee at home if that's, oh, that's what right. it is. So that's my little my little joke there. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Uh, well, let's see. You're, are you still teaching full time as well? Or part-time? Teach, yeah. I, I teach at, uh, so I run the Humanities Institute. I'm chairing a department, and then I uh, also teach uh, usually a semester, uh, a course every semester. So I'm going to teach a first-year seminar. I'm going to start in a couple of weeks with uh, brand-new students at Hopkins on Poets, Physicists, Philosophers, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality, which you'll recognize from the subtitle of the book. And then I'll teach a graduate seminar of some kind on uh, in the in the spring. Actually, it's going to be on psychoanalysis, so we can come back and talk about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'd love to have you back, and uh, it's one of my favorite topics. So, well, and and that being said, uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, Paul. It was a lot of fun. Mm. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website. 
sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.